Hello, greetings, welcome to another episode of Bear Talk. I'm your host, David Bear, and today the topic is going to be uh, Western expansion and its impact on the Navajo Nation. Uh, the The idea, the inspiration for this episode came from a, a, a new exhibit which is opening at the Bosque Redondo Memorial in Fort Sumner, New Mexico. And Fort Sumner, if you don't know, was the uh, sort of the location of an early reservation where the Navajo people were sort of sent or forced, uh, forced to travel in what's called the Long Walk. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the history of Western expansion and the history of the Navajo people leading up to the so-called Long Walk. Uh, my guests today for that uh, discussion are going to be Patrick Moore, who is the executive director of the New Mexico Historic Sites and chair of history and heritage for the Department of Cultural Affairs in New Mexico. And secondly, Manuelito Wheeler, who is the director of the Navajo Nation Museum in Window Rock, Arizona. So both of them agreed to talk to me on the podcast about the history of the Navajo people, uh, the history of Western expansion, its impact on the Navajo people, and the really rather um, sort of unhappy story of the Long Walk. Patrick Moore and Manuelito Wheeler, thank you very much for, for coming on my podcast today to talk about sort of the history of the, of the Navajo people uh, and the story of the Long Walk and so forth. Um, so I, maybe I could just start. So as I, I mentioned, you know, my, my listeners are uh, either in Texas, many of them are students in Texas, and a lot of them are in Europe, and, and I don't think they know anything about who the Navajo are or the Navajo Nation or the history uh, that we're going to talk about. So I wonder, Manny, if you could just maybe just say a little bit about who the Navajo people are, a little bit about their history, um, you know, where they are. Just, 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 just say a few things, perhaps, about who the Navajo are. Well, I mean, <laughs> describing uh, the Navajo people is... Um, it's complex and it's complex because the Navajo people are, have grown to become the largest tribe in the United States. And there are estimates of up to 400,000 Navajo people. And, uh, our, you know, our reservation uh, encompasses three U S states. It encompasses, um, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. And uh, recently we've acquired um, uh, land. Not, I shouldn't say acquired because, you know, we've, um, we have land in, in Colorado. And all of those uh, lands are their historic homelands to Navajo people but also their historic homelands to um, many other native tribes that we, we shared, you know, the, the landscape with. And so, you know, and that historically may mean um, things of, uh, of peacetime and then, but also uh, things of, um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a war because a war implicates like um, a full, a full scale, long drawn out thing, you know, but native people have uh, coexisted with each other for um, for a long time prior to uh, non-natives coming to this continent. Okay, so, so this, and so this, the Navajo Nation, this land we call the Navajo Nation, just so everyone, it's actually pretty large by, I mean, it's the size of, I don't know how many states, but it's in those larger states, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Utah, I mean, it's it's a large, um, it's large, So how, yeah. and it's an autonomous region, so I don't know how, how many states, it's roughly, if you were comparing it, do you know, maybe, Patrick, yeah. do you know, or Manny, I mean, it's, it's they, it would be they, big by Eastern standards. <laughs> yeah, they, um. They always compare it to uh, West Virginia. It's a West Virginia, okay. State of West Virginia, yeah. Okay, and is so is it? And is the is the current sort of Navajo Nation? Is it is it basically on the historic uh, land of the of the Navajo people? It's pretty much the historic yeah. area now. Okay, which even that is um, 
is rare for native people because many times native people got uh, displaced to lands that aren't their original homelands. So, yes. you know, we were, we were fortunate that we, we, that didn't happen to us. Okay, so I I want to uh, sort of tell the story or let my let the listeners hear the story of uh, sort of how we get to the today's Navajo Nation, and I I'd maybe try to start the story. I mean, from the history that I know, of course, there may be a lot of things I don't know, but if we started, let's just start with the, um, sort of when the Americans, uh, so they, they, uh, it seems that a lot of the history, or I don't know what we'd call it, the interface between the uh, the, the non-natives and the, and the Navajo people seems like it happens in New Mexico, although in the, although the, the Navajo territory is sort of in mostly in Arizona. Is, is that right? But it seems like a lot of stuff, at least the history as I know it, it really begins with the with the conquest of New Mexico or what today is New Mexico. Is that a, is that would that be right? I don't know if that statement I can't I can't comment with authority on that statement, but I was just gonna say maybe with westward expansion and that's that may be why there's more mm-hmm. um, of interaction with Navajo from in New Mexico. But Patrick I think uh would, would have more info on that. Yeah, and I think there's there's some pretty sizable chunks of the narrative that they're missing, which all kind of lays into how it this this process with the long walk took place. And it really goes back that I, I think there's an important part of respecting that the West, the Western part of the what is now the American continent was um, there were a lot of indigenous peoples who lived fought argued over resources, collaborated, survived um, long before the arrival of the Europeans. So even the Spanish were major instigators and players in this process because you had uh, Pueblos, the Navajo, Apache, other groups that were in conflict with each other, as as you find all across the world. Um, And it's when the Spanish show up, started to exploit in many respects, the the transportation routes, the creation of Camino Real, which was a major influx of of power, different kinds of resources, the bringing of different kinds of animals, um, that transformed the landscape of what we would now see as New Mexico, Arizona, but in particular New Mexico, as they moved forward into what would become Santa Fe, um, <clears throat> and and laid on top of it this tradition of conquest and exploit by European powers. Um, which played directly into limiting resources and trying to control materials and control the people on the land long before the United States was Mm -hmm. ever a player or even a consideration in this mix. And that led to an increased dynamics of tensions, who they would ally with, who they would be in opposition to, which exacerbated existing issues. It created new conflicts between different groups. And certainly the Navajo were caught uh, in the middle of this, they had their their lands, and not to speak for, for Manny here, but the four sacred mountains, the areas where their traditional homelands were, um, started to have a rub because there are limited resources in the West. And so the United States doesn't even become part of this narrative until much later you find General Kearney and the Army of the West. It arrives, uh, comes across the landscape, uh, by this point, Mexico has now uh, come for its brief occupation period uh, in in the American West. Um, they pretty much hand over the reins to the United States when the United States is work. It's going to be yeah. great. We're all going to get okay. Along so let's what's when was that happen? Wait, so, let's just get the so when the Americans. Okay, this is all good. But so the the Americans basically acquire New Mexico or this territory right about when is it eighteen forty something or uh, yeah. But, so you're looking yeah. as when General <clears throat> excuse me when General Kearney shows up with the Army of the West mm-hmm. and they're moving in in the eighteen forties and they arrive and there's this this to the present the complexity between indigenous peoples has long been there the the ownership power control who has it who's fighting against it is all been there and there's an idyllic eastern american almost chutzpah um oh well we're going to be here and we're going to treat everybody equally and it's all going to be wonderful but of course the first thing that kearney does when they arrive in santa fe is they build fort marcy and put the cannons facing into the city which says are we really here to have a peaceful co- cohabitation if you're pointing it down into where the population is 
Um, okay, so would it be right? It's going to be okay. complicated. So the, would yeah. it be right to say that once the Americans arrive, there is a more, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, more forceful sort of encounter with with the Navajo or the native peoples, that there's more of a sort of beginning of a more complete uh, sort of conquest, or, or would that not be really accurate? Actually, I think with the Navajo, and again mm-hmm. with Manny, mm-hmm. it, it's much more limited. Uh-huh. Um, they're farther away from the Navajo people. It's much more focused on the conflict with the Pueblo people that are surrounding surrounding Santa Fe and in northern New Mexico, of which the Navajo share common borders with those and the conflicts that existed. So they arrive, and there is an effort on behalf of the United States to say, well, everybody get along with everybody, and, and it's going to be this idyllic, it's, it's almost fanciful, this argument that comes out. Um, but then the United States is somewhat sidetracked because this is about the time that the American Civil War is breaking out and the focal point starts to shift. And it's during that shifting period that there is somewhat of a vacuum, if you will. And this is where General Carleton comes in and he has his eye on resources. And, it, and, it's, and it's fine to sort of look back what a General Carleton uh, his perspective were, but Carlton's view was that there are resources in the American Southwest, in particular what he believed to be there, uh, what in the homelands of the Navajo. Okay, so let's get out who General Carlton is. Okay, so let's, 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 so everyone knows. So who is General Carlton and what's his great um, uh, idea? He's a despot in many respects. <laughs> the fact that General Carlton comes, as did many uh, U.S. Generals and many uh, Americans who are looking the, the legacy of conquest that comes in. We don't call them conquistadors from the Spanish for no reason. There are opportunities here. There are mineral, minerals that are rich, and there are people who are in the way. So he he's, he and, becomes a governor of New Mexico. Is that right, Carlton, or is he just a, a military? Well, he, he's in charge of the U.S. forces. Oh, the U.S. forces, yeah, the territorial forces, and and, and he gets this idea that. He, he likes the idea of a reservation, or is, is, is he the guy that comes up with this idea, or how does this idea, let's, let's solve all the uh, problem with the Indians by having reservations. Is that, is, that, is that his idea? Well, I wouldn't say that it's entirely his idea. There was actually a reservation, if you want to call it that, a, that predates this in California, um, which is a very different environment. To relocate indigenous peoples um, was different in California because the resources are much more plentiful. So it was at a much, much smaller but for Carlton, he is going to use the argument that, well, we just need everybody to get along under our control. And by doing this, um, we will relocate the Navajo people. We will round them up and we will take them somewhere else. And there's, there's what the argument is. And then there's clearly other conversations going on about available resources for exploiting that you want to build around, which was a common narrative across northern north, northern part northern united states or the northern the american continent the, the west will go take advantage of these resources so he wants to t- take the, the west he thinks there's resources there uh the these the navajo people living there they're kind of in the way and so he says well why don't we move all of these navajo people to a reservation sort of in um uh, in uh i guess eastern new mexico and they can live there, and it'll be really great, right? So I don't know, Manny. What's the I don't, maybe? I should very ask, simple, but tried. Yeah, right. So that's right. Argument. So I don't, Manny. How is this history? So this is the history of of, of General Carlton, Carlton's sort of encounter. Or I, I don't know how to call it with the, with the with the Navajo people. How 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 um I don't know how is this sort of story told among the Navajo? Well, you know, when when it comes to that era of um of history you know it is uh, uh it depends on how and who the story is being told by <laughs> so you know there how uh new mexico arizona and california were um, acquired from mexico um, by the united states you know that's again that's that's also um a complicated thing and uh even prior to that you know okay well here's mexico that says they own all of these um lands but even in that 
in that narrative, well, what about the indigenous people that were already living there? How, how were they treated and, and so forth? And it just kind of always seems that um, Native people, uh, their, their side of um, things uh, tend uh, not to be discussed or even thought about. So, you know, the part of the reasoning of sending um, Navajo people to Fort Sumner, to this new reservation, was um, Navajo people were creating problems with the uh, expansion of the United States, you know, with all of the Americans coming in to settle where other uh, Mexican settlers were, were living. So there, I mean, it was just a real mess all, all the way around because here were Mexicans that were that were living there um, under the jurisdiction of Mexico prior to the United States coming in, and then um, you know how exactly um, the, the U.S. acquired um, those Mexicans, what are now California, Arizona. I think you, I don't know, if Texas is in there. And, and New Mexico, but you know, my, my main point is that it was it was it was just this mi mix of of a lot of problems that were starting to happen. So, getting back to to Navajo people, you know, um, one of the things that is is not really discussed a lot is that there was um, slave trade going on, and Navajo people were really uh, targeted um, by Mexicans uh, to, you know, to be captured and then uh, put into slavery um, ar around the, the Southwest. And mm -hmm. that was a, a big point of contention um, with Navajo people and our uh, reactions to that. And our reactions to that were, uh, were war, um, were, were these skirmishes um either for uh vengeance or either skirmishes to get get our people back and um you know that drug on even after uh, the u.s uh started to control the southwest you know there was still these um slave raids and um, that that caused a lot of um, um skirmishes between navajos and the people starting to um, take over the Southwest. The non-Native people started to take over the Southwest. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then um, this, and that, I think that slave stuff, it even kind of goes on a little past the Civil War. Is that right? I mean, it's it's not, it's a kind of slavery in New Mexico that, uh, you know, even after slavery is officially over, and you know, it's still going on in this in this form with uh, Navajo slaves and so forth, right? I think that's that's right. So, a little bit after, yes. Yeah, a little bit after. So, uh, so General Carlton wants to he wants to move the Navajo people to basically Fort Sumner, all right, which is I don't know hundreds of miles away from where the Navajo homeland is. I mean, it's it's not anywhere near it. Right? I mean, it's hundreds of miles. Um, and he just all he has to do is persuade the Navajo people that hey, why don't you come? Uh, live over in this uh, this area in Fort Sumner, it, it'll be great. I mean, what's the, um, <clears throat> why did he pick? I don't know, maybe Pat, Patrick, you can say, well, why did he, why did this guy Carlton think that this area around Fort Sumner or Bosque Redondo, why did he think it was a good place uh, for the Navajo to settle? Well, he was horribly misguided on this one. And actually, he didn't even listen when the topographical survey, Army Corps, went, look, they, they said this is a place that, yes, there's a forest. Bosque Redondo, the round forest, um, this isn't a great place. The water is very alkaline. It's, it's, not, um, it's not a place which can support people. But he had seen it when he was in his younger period, thought, no, this is a great place. So he pushed forward, I guess, despite the fact that the record said this is not a place that has any viable uh, capacity to support people. But that's what he moved forward on. And so, rounding people up went out there. So they knew in advance this was not going to be a place that was going to be sustainable. So, now, we also have the, it, it was just not the Navajo either. There were also the Mescalero Apache. Uh -huh. That was on the, the edge of their hunting grounds and where their, their 
their world did extend to this, but even then knew, they knew that this was not a place which was sustainable for, for many people or for long periods of time. So it was a disaster from the outset. So, so this guy Carlton, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to be a nuanced historian here. So he just, it's kind of like the, I don't know this, I don't know, symbolic or it's like a, it's like a prototypical case of somebody with an idea Right. Oh, I got a great idea without attending to any of the sort of like details or facts. And he just thinks he's going to realize his idea. Right. And it's just sort of like it's some fantasy idea. It has no realistic. uh, It's not it's not a good idea. It's not very attentive to the facts on the ground. It's not even fully informed, but he's just sort of committed to his dream or something. Is that a fair? Is that maybe not nuanced, but is that a fair description, do you think, Uh, of the guy? I think in some ways, yes. Okay. And I, I think to, to to give a little bit too much credit to him to say that he didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Okay. And I okay. think this really underlies some of the true tragedy of this, that you have been told this is not a place that can do this. He has a mission, which in many ways is backed by, at the time, U.S. policy, relocation, and the idea of, of, of exploiting and taking advantage of this manifest destiny notion um, you know, is, is germinating is becoming something here to relocate people off of land using a particular argument. There was very likely in the back of, of his mind in doing this that he knew what the outcome was going to be. Okay. All right. So, Manny, how, how does uh, General Carlton persuade the, the Navajo people to, to leave their homeland and travel to Fort Sumner? So, <clears throat> definitely, let's um, be very clear that. Um, there was no persuasion by, by General Carleton. And uh, this is where, um, you know, the, the, the famous uh, Kit Carson gets called into to action. And um, that, you know, Kit Carson, you know, depending on, on who you ask is, you know, is this American adventurer hero type. But um, for Navajo people and other Americans, you know, they, they really see him as this, um, as, uh, you know, a, a humongous betrayal because Kit Carson traveled in and around Navajo country, befriend, befriended Navajo people. Um, and, uh, you know, he really utilized um, all of what he learned during that time to uh, assist Carlton in um, forcing uh, Navajo people into subjugation. And it was, you know, a lot of it was um, by showing the military, um, the U.S. military where Navajo homelands and the ins and outs of our homelands, and then um, even more uh, despicable of um, you know, just uh, the, the, the scorched earth campaign was brought on un, under him, which was burning all of our food sources. And um, and that's how Navajo people were forced um, into going to Fort Sumner because people were starving. All, all of our um, food sources had been depleted. Okay, so Kit Carson is put in charge of the mission to, to sort of bring or force the Navajo people to Fort Sumner. Um, Kit Carson is a legendary sort of, uh, I don't know, Western. He started out as a trapper, right? He was illiterate, but he uh, he had a lot of interaction with Indians and, and, and everything. He's just sort of this legendary figure, but he's basically the guy. I don't know if he devises a strategy, but he implements the strategy that is going to um, force the Navajo people uh, to make this uh, trek over to Fort Sumner, right? And so he, he doesn't do it. I can correct me if I'm wrong. He doesn't really do it by engaging in very many direct battles, right, or, or, or skirmishes or whatever you want to call them with the Navajo people. He just implements a scorched earth policy. He's going, it's, I guess, before the winter, and he's going to destroy everything, right, Every, all their food, burn the burn all the crops, and I guess the plan is to um, starve the Navajo so they'll have to just surrender, right? It's a sort of let's destroy yeah. every means that these people have to sustain themselves and they will surrender they'll come to the americans you know because they're starving and then we'll send them to fort sumner right that's that's what happened right i mean it's it's not just what happened but i mean yeah imagine you're um 
you know, in your mind, who's a good friend of yours? And mm-hmm. imagine that friend betraying you in, in the worst possible way. Mm-hmm. You know? And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what he did. So there's a story connected to this um, this Kit Carson, I don't know what we call it, the scorched earth policy, where uh, uh, Kit Carson arrives at Canyon de Chez, right? Uh, as, and Canyon de Chez is, uh, I don't know, how would you describe Canyon de Chez, Manny? For, what, what's the significance of Canyon de Chez? Um, well, aside from having uh, uh, spiritual um, significance for Navajo people, uh, it's 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 in our creation story, so you know it's it's definitely a special place for Navajo people. But it's also, you know, there's springs there. The earth is fertile. It's beautiful. So it's just some you know a real uh, nice place to um, to live. And you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of Navajo people are in and around there, and it kind of becomes like um, a little. Uh, a fortress within Navajo land that that not all and probably not even most, but a lot of Navajo people are are in and around um, Canyon de Chez at this point. Okay, and Canyon de Chez. I'm sorry, it's definitely no. a, a hub for Navajo people. Uh, it's, it's in Arizona uh, today, yes. and um, so it's kind of a fortress. It's maybe the place where the Navajo are, they're they're hold out when they, when when Kit Carson is destroying all the crop, burning all the crops and so all the corn and so forth. And so he, uh, my understanding is Kit Carson, I guess it's the, and it arrives at Canyon de Chez, or it's a several armies, right? Or two, and they move through Canyon de Chez and they destroy everything, right? Because Canyon de Chez is a fertile place, right? Or they, and they, so they, that's the last thing. They destroy everything, even in Canyon de Chez. Uh, and I think it was after that, that the you guys could correct me that the uh that the, then the Navajo kind of surrendered or said that okay we we have to turn ourselves in and and move to Fort Sumner is that is that right or move to Bosque Redondo I mean I mean there's a lot that happens in between yeah. there but that's definitely marks the the beginning of um of the forced subjugation yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so then so then what happens next or what's the how, how, what you know this is this gets us to what's called the long walk right what's this what's the what's the story of the long walk or how what, what's what happens there mm, I, I mean I, th- I think you know in terms of my knowledge and and oral histories about what what had happened um you know there's there's that aspect of it and then there's also you know um, written aspects that are, you know, coming from the military standpoint and, and those types of archives, you know, and, you know, if you're writing your own archive and writing your own history, you know, you're not gonna put down all the negative things that are happening. You know, there might be mention of this and that, but as, um, as, as historian and scholars, both of which I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a um, I'm a person that has grown up on the Navajo Nation, and um, I do have um, a history background, but I'm I'm not a scholar. But that still does not prevent me from having uh, knowledge and opinions about uh, about what happened. And and that being said, um, you got to learn to read between the lines when you're reading um, archives of. Uh, from, from the military standpoint. Uh, but, you know, so what happens in between the, these, the scorched earth campaign in that era to how did Navajo people get to, to Fort Sumner and do the long walk? So there are the, the big um, misconception and even among Navajo people was like, there was one long walk, you know, it was, it was multiple trips with multiple groups of people in the hundreds and 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 they were all uh, moving towards uh fort sumner and there were forts here in and around the navajo nation that were the the funnels so to say that this is where the navajo people were like they're starving you know imagine you having children and they're to the point of um starving to death of course you know you're going to do whatever you can 
and they just start bringing them to these forts and saying, you know, we'll we'll go to where wherever you're telling us to go to. And that's kind of in general how all these people started to um, turn themselves in. But there were also uh, forced roundups of, of Navajo people to um, take them to Fort Sumner. And how long does this period uh, last, uh, uh, this roundup? Uh, I mean, how, how, how long does it take to sort of execute this, this plan to, to move the Navajo to Fort Sumner? Um, I'm not... I, I, at this point, I would only be guessing, but I would say uh, two to three years. But I'd like Patrick to right. chime in on that. All right. Yeah, it, and it was. And Manny's right. This was years, and it was small groups, large groups. They would round up. And I think, as as Manny pointed out, this misconception that there was sort of a straight route that you showed up and then you went right directly there. Different groups went different ways um, when they marched them back. Some ended up for a period. Um, up at Fort Union, and then were taken down to Bosque Redondo. There were others who went more direct routes, some that ended up going to Santa Fe. There were a lot of different times that they would march, and like you said, hundreds of miles that they would force these people in very difficult conditions that would all come out there. So it was an ongoing process of evacuating people. And, and, and I think it also helps, as Manny points out, to say that it's not Navajo Nation today is much smaller than it was that the area um where they was there at their homelands were much much larger and so if you're looking as manny said as a size even today which is west virginia larger than you're rounding up pockets of people in various communities and packing them up and moving them out forcing them to come across the landscape it was a and it was an arduous process that you're bringing some ten thousand people uh out to what would be fort sumner and another key part of this Fort Sumner was not a place that existed before this process started. When they showed up, they marched people out there and said, build the fort around which we will control these people. So it wasn't like a frontier fort that you have in this perception. Uh, so many people expect, you know, the, the F Troop uh, television show kind of mentality that then they're going in out. No, they brought these people and said, this is where you're going to be incarcerated and build the fort on, around which we will operate this camp. And so you said there are 10,000 people that they sent to Fort, you think 10,000 people? And do we know? About 10,000, yeah. About 10,000. And do we know, like, say, uh, have an idea of how many people died on the on the way or, or, or you know, didn't make it? Or, or I mean, do we have any sense of the sort of, I don't know, the casualties involved and before the people got to Fort Sumner? You know, re we do have records. We have records of the disease that was rampant in the camps, mm -hmm. but the records of how many people died along the way, a lot of that's estimations because there mm -hmm. was a forced march. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people died along the way, and then you start keeping records on where people were. And, this, and the reservation today, Fort Sumner and the Bosque Redondo Memorial is a relatively small footprint. It was, it was huge, this place where they were bringing people with no resources to survive off when they arrived. And trying to supply them was far beyond any expectation that the military, even if they had attempted to do something in the right way, far fewer materials than they possibly could survive. And to grow things there was, you know, nearly impossible. So we have records, but those records are, are limited at best in terms of just what the casualties were on how people died, how many people died coming and how many people died when they arrived. Okay, so and after they were there, so we get roughly ten thousand people. We don't have a sense of um, you know how many people Thousands. died in the process, but certainly there were people who died in the in the either in the moving there or once they got there because there was disease. And so, how big was this area that that, that was supposed to be the reservation that they had? That, that how big was the Fort Sumner area that roughly? And even then, so it was it would have been. Hundreds and hundreds of acres, massive, miles walk just to go and get wire, water um, from various places up to the river. And when you got to the river, it was it was very salty, saline water, which was terrible. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you often think about a, a, some kind of a camp, but this was the American first American concentration camp story. Where are you going to go? I mean, there wasn't try to, uh, we're going to escape this place. And indeed, in 1863 is when the hundreds of, of Mescalero Apaches there decide they're going to leave uh, in the middle of the night. They're like, that's it. They leave 11 who keep the campfires going so that the 
the army will be not aware. They just flee and they disappear into the night. This was not an option for the thousands and thousands of Navajos. So, you know, it was massive. It just kind of extended out and extended out. And the first people were there. You get what limited resources you have and you have to take, you know, what wood there was at the Bosque Redondo just to build a shelter. And then, and then how do you find fuel for firewood? How do you find water? And then once you get delivered rations from the U.S. Army that nobody knew what to do with, it was, it was an absolute disaster, a horrific nightmare from the outset. And, and if not an actual attempt at genocide, certainly an attempt at cultural genocide came out of this process. Right, so it's a it's a catastrophe. Uh, I my so you guys correct me. So they um, the first how many years are are how how many years does this project go on? Four years. Four years. Right. And, and, yeah, uh, so, and so they have to build the fort. They have to build their homes, I guess. And then um, uh, they're supposed to plant crops, right, or plant corn, or, or what they have to. It's supposed to become. It's supposed to be some sort of agricultural paradise or something like that right isn't that the the, the plan uh, and so what happens with the what happens with the crops i mean it's not good land or what what's the story there this doesn't even this doesn't work out right i don't yeah i think um no you know, yeah and in, in all instances you know the um the land is not uh suitable for for growing the crops that they had at that time anyway you know, they try and grow corn and um, nothing works out, whether it's because of the soil or the water that they're trying to um, irrigate it with. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, it, it, it just turns into um, a catastrophe. And, you know, I, I, I visited there for the first time, um, I mean, it's like three, four years ago, oh, maybe even longer than that, maybe five years ago. And Navajo people have um, beliefs, whether they're um, just personal beliefs, or um, but they definite there definitely are spiritual beliefs about visiting Fort Sumner, um, and and so you know I, I had to contend with those before I went there, and so after um, you know seeking advice from um, people. I, I trust with spiritual um, things, you know, I, I went there. But um, when I got there, then I started asking questions to uh, the people at the uh, Bosque Redondo Museum, you know, like, well, like, where, where were the Navajo people at? And where, in my mind, you know, I pictured like what everybody listening to this podcast thinks, like, oh, you know, there's these big wooden poles and there's this big old fort and that's now what people were kept in there, but that, that wasn't even the case, you know, uh, Fort Sumner, the area, it's just like this big old open uh, prairies. And so, you know, um, they told me, well, the Navajo people were, um, like two to three miles in that direction from the fort, you know, from the actual buildings of the fort. So Navajo people were a, a ways away from the actual fort. And I'm like, well, couldn't they just like escape then? And, you know, they, they were held there by um, the landscape and the military. Military, they had outposts um, miles out beyond there um, to detect if people were escaping or not. And so, but there was no like physical barrier. You know, the barrier was, um, was food, was trying to stay alive. You know, the fort had had the food for Navajo people to stay alive. And, you know, there were other tribes there that were, um, uh, they were keeping Navajo people there. It's like if these Navajo people escaped, then they would have to contend with um, other tribes that were in, in that region. So there was a lot of um, things that were, were holding uh, Navajo people there other than a physical barrier. Mm-hmm. And so, you, m- most uh, most Navajo don't don't go visit. Uh, um, I wouldn't say most, but there's um, a significant portion that take that into consideration as to whether or not they should um, visit for somewhere for spiritual reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, so how does it? Uh, how does this end? Well, you know, I'd like Patrick to uh, give a 
you know, a, a, a scholarly uh, um, answer to that. But, you know, from just kind of my, my understanding of it as a Navajo person, um, you know, I think there were a lot of things that were going on. Uh, I think uh, the Civil War, you know, um, that, that had an impact on, on it. I think the resources that it was taking to keep these thousands of Navajo people there was just too much on the U.S. government. You know, they were like, this is costing us too much and this is, uh, this is turned into a mess and we need to get out of it. We got the Civil War we're contending with right now. And, and we need to um, we need to focus our attention on that. So let's just uh, let these Navajo people go. But even within that, there were um, uh, there was the, uh, the decisions that needed to, to be made. Of, well, well, we're sending all the natives either to Oklahoma, which is was this big giant Indian reservation, or even to um, Florida. So you know, should, there was that. Shall we just send all these Navajo people here to 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 one of those places? And so there was a big um, discussion amongst Navajo leaders, uh, which included um, the women, you know, uh, as to um, talking with the people there at the Fort, the leadership there at, at Fort Sumner to why we, sh we needed to go back to our original homelands. Mm -hmm. Patrick, you want to add? And, and, yeah, yeah, and I think that 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 is a right on line with summary that it it was expensive, it was a failed attempt. Rumor had been coming back, stories had been coming about about just the hor horrific nature of this. And General Sherman from Civil War fame learned of this and made the trip across the country to see for himself. And it was upon his arrival to say, "Okay, this is not going to happen. We can't do this." And that um, negotiation that led to the, the signing of the Navajo Treaty on June 1st of 1868 um, that ended it once and for all. I think it's really important that your listeners understand just, uh, just how significant this was. Um, because when they signed a treaty, the United States government does not treat with its own people. So in doing this, they acknowledged the sovereignty in their own way of the Navajo people and returning it back to what was a relatively tiny postage stamp of comparison to what their homelands were, but still provided at least that foothold. With that said, it also set into place um, in many ways, which would be a continuation of the cultural devastation of the Navajo people, allowing them to go back, but almost placing restrictions on them, which we have seen um, repeated over and over and over again throughout throughout the following decades with, with other Native peoples. Um, I'm trying to set up a system of control, the creation of the Indian schools, the creation of, of we will provide the resources so that we control the narrative for this. And I think this uh, really where Manny's story comes in and how important of even his work he's doing today, this argument of the way the Navajo people have been able to overcome not just Bosque Redondo, but in many ways, the outcomes of that treaty itself, that yes, it created uh, the foothold, but it was by no small feat that the Navajo people were able to sustain and grow and become the nation that they are today, despite what the United States imposed upon them through this treaty. Okay, so, so this treaty is 1868. Is, is called, what's the name of the treaty, or does it have a... The, uh, well, the Treaty of 1868. The Treaty of 1868. Okay, it's got a, it's conveniently named. And uh, so, what were kind of the terms of the treaty? This is the treaty that allowed the Navajo to return to their homeland. Is it, so, what 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 kind of what were the terms of that treaty? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to answer that question um, clearly because it, within that treaty were um, promises of. Um, you know, the, 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 there were promises for their time. And since then, they have been um, have been made so that they are um, they are able to to grow with with the Navajo people, but promises of education, promises of health care, promises of, um, you know, um, livestock, 
and that's what I mean. They're promises of further time. You know, it's like it says, well, we'll give you each Navajo person a, a cow or something like that. But, you know, how that has um, been translated into today's terminology or into today's um, laws, it's, it gets very complicated, you know. Um, so I think even more importantly, but maybe or just as important as what was written on those treaties was, you know, you imagine all of these Navajo people and they're being um, told to, their leaders are being told to sign this treaty, which is, um, I forget how many pages long, you know, 20, 18, 20, I don't know, but it's around that many pages. But it's all these Navajo people that are illiterate in um, English that don't understand English and are um, having this stuff interpreted to them from English to Spanish and then from Spanish to Navajo. And, you know, you, you better believe that things were lost in translation to all of those Navajo people that signed the treaty. But my point is those leaders, they were like, we just want to go home. We just, as long as you tell us that's where we're going to go when we sign this paper, we're returning to our homeland. That's that's what we want to, that's the bottom line, you know? So when you say, well, what does this treaty say and what does it mean? Um, there's a, a, a plethora of Navajo lawyers that can answer that question for you and that help us hold um, the U.S accountable for their promises to us. Um, but that's not my point. My point is all we cared about was going home. And I had this discussion with a, a Navajo um, leader, uh, a former Navajo um, uh, chairman slash president. And, you know, we talked about like, you know, I wonder if there were people that were like saying, um, well, we don't want that. We want this. And, the, and they're going to tell us this and, and, we don't agree with that. We want this. And yeah, of course, you know, we both came to that conclusion that there were probably Navajo leaders that were like, we're, we don't agree to that. We want this, but all in all, and it's just like today's politics, regardless of, of race or tribe or American or not, you know, it's all these people coming to agreement. Like you just agree to it. We just want to go home, you know? And I think that's, that's the bottom line. So how how did they how did they go home? Well, um, prior to to them going back, prior to them signing the treaty, you know, there's a a, a beautiful oral history of um, a ceremony that happened the the day before the signing of the treaty, and within that ceremony, it required the capture of a coyote. And they captured a coyote and a ceremony was held and a, um, a bead from a necklace was placed in the coyote's mouth um, as an offering. And after the ceremony was released, um, um, or after the ceremony was over, they released the coyote and the coyote went in the direction of the Navajo homelands. And that's when the Navajos knew, like, this is going to go in our favor. And so, you know, um, how does it happen after the, the treaty is signed? And, and I think, um, Patrick, again, I'd like to defer to you on this, but I asked Aaron that, like, how soon after the treaty was signed did everybody start saying, yeah, like, did they start moving out? And I think he said the next day, I'm not sure, but um, that would, uh, I'd defer to Patrick as to how soon they started to leave for home. Yeah, and I think that's that's absolutely right, Manny. It was right away. I think the desire and and the the ceremony gave. I think the uh, the story is always very powerful. I think it was a question: How do we get back? We've been here for so long, and and so many, you might say, the spirit broken of the people, um, and to say this was the way we're going to go. And it was right away that they they departed, and and I think that. Um, Part of what we've done now at, at the at the Bosque Verdondo Memorial and the new exhibit we've had is really to try and, and highlight some of those things, to put those pieces together, to underscore both what happened then and how it happened after. And I know um, 
it was just a few years ago at the 150th uh, anniversary of the signing of the treaty is when uh, then the vice president of the Navajo Nation, uh, now President Nez, uh, and a group of others, they ran back um, leading up to that event, departed out of Fort Sumner and went all the way back 403 miles, uh, ran back over many days back to back to Window Rock. And it was kind of a very powerful statement. And actually the shoes that the, the then then Vice President, President now is wearing are part of the exhibit that we have there at Bolskier Dondo. So, okay, so say, say say a little bit about the exhibit. So now if you were to go to Fort Sumner or if there's an exhibit there at Bosque Redondo, you have a, I mean, there's an exhibit there in this, at this, at the place where this, where the, where the, at Bosque Redondo. So, well, and I, I will, I'll just set the basic table and I'll, I'll okay. pass it over to Manny because I think what makes this so important was it's such an, a difficult, if not impossible, story to tell by the people of New Mexico, by the state of New Mexico. It is it is a uh, the Bosque Redondo Memorial at Fort Sumner Historic Site uh, opened back in, in the 1960s with this plan to tell this story. And even during the 1960s, when you're looking at an awakening in the civil rights movement, etc., this was something that many people did not want to talk about. And it started off first as being to tell the American concentration camp story, and it was quickly opposition ended up making it backtrack where they stopped talking about what happened there and rather told the story of a frontier fort and it stayed that way for decades wasn't until uh 1990 early 1990s when a group of navajo students came visited the site saw civil war soldiers marching around and and not talking anything about what happened at this site that they left a letter at the site that that demanded that this site tell the story of what happened at Bosco Redondo accurately, tell the truth about what happened here. And that powerful letter that sparked an, an entire new conversation that said, we have to stop ignoring what the true history was here. It's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant. It talks about American uh, imperialism and control and just completely brushes over the impact and the aftermath. And out of that started and created the Bosque Dondo Memorial, and they built a building which opened back in the mid-2000s. But the question was, how do we tell the story? A lot of stops and starts, because it was a growth period that museum professionals across the United States were realizing it's impossible for one people to tell the story of another people. And they came up with ideas and conversations and failed and failed and failed, and it was largely an empty building up through just a few years ago. And it was about this point in 2015, 2016, that a genuine conversation started coming in that the only way we can tell this story is if we actually work hand in hand every step of the way between the state of New Mexico, Department of Cultural Affairs, Historic Sites, the Mescalero Apache tribe, and the Navajo Nation. And a lot of this was about building the relationships where we could really enter into something, not just for a one time, we'll build it and then we'll wipe our hands off and say, well, we're glad that's over with, but how do we create a relationship that we can accurately tell this story that can not just tell the story of this now, but how it can continue to tell the story going forward. And that is really the power of this exhibit. It's going to be opening to the public uh, at the end of, of May on on may 28th we're going to do the grand opening although technically it's publicly open right now um, we'll be doing that but very much a, a relationship in doing this and this is how um we've approached every single facet of this new exhibit that's come in and how we're doing that so i'll pass this over to manny because i think how often has it been where somebody says let me tell your story for you and that is just destined to failure and i think this is different yeah so you know, to add to what Patrick has, has said, um, you know, aside from, not aside, but let me, let me, let me finish, finish that by saying, um, I've been involved in a lot of exhibits throughout my career. And, um, you know, there are many times where a tribal person is hired as a consultant, but it's almost like that person is hired to rubber stamp an approval onto an exhibit that uh, a non-native already has put together. And um, in this instance, you know, um, that didn't happen. 
you know, there were many uh, conversations and, and, and hard conversations where um, they, they had to totally uh, get rid of an idea they had to um, make way for these ideas that came from uh, Navajo and Apache people. So, you know, this, you know, like Patrick said, this, you know, this is an exhibit that um, everybody from all sides uh, worked uh, hard on to get to it, to what it is today. And that, that's the part I want to talk about is what it, what it is today. And so uh, Fort Sumner, the town of Fort Sumner today is a very um, small town, you know, it's a small town in, in uh, central New Mexico. And it's on these rolling hills of uh, beautiful rolling hills of, um, of New Mexico. But within that little town, there is this beautiful world class exhibit. And, uh, you know, it's something, not only is it a beautiful exhibit, but it's a powerful and emotional exhibit. So, you know, uh, I really recommend all of your listeners to uh, make their way there to, to take a look at, at what has been made. You know, um, there's a lot of uh, high-tech interactives in this museum. There's a lot of personal histories in this museum. There's a lot of, uh, um, you know, artifacts, you know, that are there. There's like um, tokens that were used during the uh, rationing of food at Fort Sumner during that time. So there's a lot of uh, interesting, very interesting aspects from um, all sides. But for me, the thing that really gets, gets me excited about this exhibit is just um, how powerful it is and how well done it is. You know, um, for those of you that have traveled to metropolitan areas and seen exhibits in museums in those big areas, this is an exhibit that can easily run alongside those types of exhibits. So, um, you know, I encourage everybody to come out and, uh, and learn about uh, the history, that, that point of history for, um, for everybody that was involved for, for um, now for Mescalero people, for U.S. people. I mean, it, it's, it's something that the whole world needs to, to learn about. Okay. Yeah, I, I was at Fort Sumner, I mean, many years ago. So I haven't seen the new exhibit, but I, I, I definitely want to uh, make a point of seeing it. It's, it's not far from Texas. It's, you know, you, people in Texas are listening could, could go. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, I definitely agree the history is... Um, I mean, it's really important and sort of unknown, largely unknown. Um, and it's it's a it's a really it's an important history. I mean, it's a sad history, but there's also kind of a dignity to the history too. Um, and I'd I'd like to thank you guys uh, for for taking your time to come and 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 talk to me on my podcast. And Manny, I appreciate you uh, you know telling giving your giving us your perspective. Um, uh, I, I really appreciate it, and I hope that. Uh, well, I hope that some of the listeners will go and 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 uh, see Fort Sumner. And other than that, I'll I'll talk to my listeners uh, in the next episode. But thank you guys very much. Cool. Thank you. Thank you, David. And I would also say it is only part of the story. It's equally important for their listeners if they have a chance to make it up to Navajo Nation. The the yeah. Navajo Nation Museum up at Window Rock is it's an equally important part of this narrative and something that you only get a piece of the story. Um, and if you really want to have a deeper understanding, got to go there too. And, and that's actually, and, and just going to the Navajo Nation, if you're not, you've never done it, or I mean, it's very, it's just, a, it's impressive. If you, for people who are not from the Southwest or from, I mean, it's like, it's just worth doing, uh, yeah. you know, so I'd, I, I'd agree. Yeah. Yeah. So. Come on, come on over to the Navajo Nation. You know, I think um, people have a lot of uh, ideas about what, what it is and how and who we are but you know just like anywhere you know uh you, you don't know until you go there but everybody come and just google it uh if you need more info we're here at the Navajo nation museum we have uh, friendly staff to answer your questions if you just want to call about traveling this way mm-hmm.